Psalm 16, John 6. How would you respond? How would you respond if you were asked to forsake Jesus? Somebody said to you, do you want to walk away? Do you want to take your life back into your own hands? Do you want to live as if Christ is nothing to you? Instead of living as if Christ is Lord, just make yourself Lord. Reassume the throne of your own life. How would you respond? Somebody said, do you want to turn back? Do you want to walk away? Do you want to abandon Christ? How would you respond to those questions? In some ways, we're confronted with those questions all the time. We're confronted with those questions every time we hear about somebody else leaving the faith, right? We're confronted with those questions, whether it's someone from our past, maybe even someone from our own church, or, or, or maybe we're confronted with those questions every time some high-profile celebrity decides that they're going to deconstruct their faith, right? Whomever it may be, their defection confronts us with those questions, do you want to turn back too? You want to follow them instead of following Christ? You want to go, as way as, uh, go away as well? So how do you answer those questions? And why do you answer the questions that way? This morning, we're going to look at John 6, where we find an individual confronted with these exact questions. In John 6, a follower of Jesus is confronted with that option. You see those who are defecting, do you want to go with them, or do you want to continue to follow? Let's read it, John six fifty three through 66. Start off at 53 to 59. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. These are the words, partially, that lead up to a defection from Christ and ultimately results in a situation where his followers are confronted with the question, Do you want to go away as well? So throughout Christ's discourse on presenting himself as the bread of life, he's presented himself as the one sent by the Father with the exclusive authority and ability to give life to all who believed in him. And in doing so, he uses a metaphor. Remember it? The last few weeks, he uses a metaphor of food and drink, bread and drink. What he's saying is the one who believes in him would receive spiritual life, a life sustained by their continual dependence upon him. And so he compares his flesh and blood to bread and drink because it's through the offering of his body on the cross as a substitute. It's through that that he will make spiritual life possible. So then to feed on Jesus is to have a persistent faith in him. And we saw, remember last week, I think it was last week, we saw that Jesus defines for us in this context what it means to feed on him. It means to have persistent faith in him. 
He has to live as one wholly dependent upon him for spiritual life. This is what he's been presenting in his Bread of Life discourse. But many in the crowd hear this and they can't accept it. They can't accept it. They cannot accept his claim that he's been sent from heaven by the Father. They can't accept the fact that he would give his flesh and blood for the spiritual life of others. Look in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about him, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Just like their Jewish ancestors that grumbled against Moses as he was leading them out of captivity in Egypt, here they are grumbling at Jesus who would lead them out from under the captivity of sin. They're offended by him. And so he continues his response in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, that's an odd response to these who are grumbling against Jesus. What does this have to do with the context here? You're grumbling, you can't accept these things. Well, what if you were to see me ascend, the Son of Man ascend? Well, when you see that phrase, Son of Man, you recognize that Jesus is invoking uh, Daniel chapter 7. There in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel sees an individual come before God, and from God he receives a kingdom. And was he called one like the Son of Man? Jesus, in John 6, in responding to the grumbling Jews, invokes this imagery and presents himself as that Son of Man. What's the connection? What he's saying is, you're offended at the idea that I have been sent by the Father from heaven? Then how in the world will you believe when I'm resurrected and ascend back to the Father to receive all dominion? If you can't believe I've descended, you'll never believe it when I ascend. This statement strikes right to the heart of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. If you're to be a disciple of Jesus, you must believe in the resurrection. In fact, every time the disciples are called witnesses in the book of Acts, it's always in connection to the resurrection. And so Christ is saying, you can't believe. If you can't believe I've been sent by the Father, you'll never believe when I go back to the Father. If you can't believe I've descended from heaven, you'll never believe when I ascend back to heaven. So many in the crowd here are following Christ, but they're not following Christ. They're following Jesus, but the Jesus they're following is not Jesus for who he actually is. They're following a Jesus of their own mind. And I'm going to say they're following a domesticated Jesus. A Jesus who's a political Jesus, a Jesus who may be, you know, a wise Jesus. He may be a good man and so on, but he's not the Jesus predicted in Scripture. He's a moral Jesus, yeah, okay, uh, maybe even a powerful Jesus, but he's not the Jesus who is the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days and receives dominion and a kingdom so that all peoples will serve him. Jesus continues in verse 63, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
Jesus is saying that his teaching, his words have life-generating power on par with the creative words of God himself. The Spirit of God works through the words of Jesus to make uh, individuals spiritually alive. And that tells us something this morning about salvation. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you think, okay, this is it. I'm here. I've come to church. I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to get right with God. We'll understand that salvation is the matter of a work of the Spirit. The words of Christ will make you spiritually alive on the inside. It's not enough to have some sort of intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is some of what he revealed himself to be. You must be born again by the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus said to John 3. Remember how long ago? I don't know how long ago that was, but we were in John 3 at one point. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is a divine, sovereign work of God, whereby He, by His Holy Spirit, makes people new on the inside. And so, you could say to the crowd here, you, you, you feel like you've made an intellectual decision to follow Jesus? Who in your estimation is good and moral and maybe even wise? But according to Jesus, the flesh is no help at all. This has to be a spiritual work. The Spirit of God must bring to you spiritual life, which generates a faith in Him as the divine Son sent by the Father and the source of eternal life. By pointing out the difference between an intellectual belief in a deficient Jesus of one's own making and a genuine spirit-wrought belief in Jesus as the sent Son who came to bring eternal life, Jesus is exposing many in the crowd. He continues, verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so, many in the crowd, some intellectual belief is not a spirit-wrought belief, it's not uh, an indication of regeneration, but many following Jesus for whatever reason, but they weren't following Christ for who he actually was. This is true all the time. This is true, you know, it's a shame to say, but we must say it. This is true even this morning. There are some even here in our midst that are following Christ for the wrong reasons. In fact, their conception of Jesus is not the Jesus of Scripture. This is true the world over with those who claim to be followers of Christ. For these, their Jesus, some would say that Christ is not even a historical figure. Some would say that Christ was not divine, yet they claim to be following Jesus. Some would say that Jesus did not perform miracles, yet they claim to be following Jesus. There are some who would say, well, Jesus never really confronted sin. Don't you love that when people want to say, well, well, Jesus never mentioned fill in the blank. It's like, really, is that how we're going to do this? Unless Jesus mentions every single sin conceivable to man that he must not be against it, right? Uh, Jesus did not confront sin. Others uh, might be on the other side of the spectrum and say that Jesus did not love sinners. Some claim to be following Jesus, but their Jesus did not die as a substitute. Some claim to be following Jesus, but their Jesus did not bear the wrath of God. They don't believe in penal substitution. There's some who claim to be following Jesus, but they don't believe that he bodily rose from the dead. 
There are some who claim to be following Jesus, but they don't believe that Christ is currently ruling and reigning. There are some who claim to follow Christ, but they don't believe He's going to one day return again. Who are these people following? This is not the Jesus of Scripture. Their Jesus is not Jesus. So what do individuals like this need? They need to be confronted with the Jesus of Scripture. They need to be disabused of their false Christs and exposed for what they are, really false converts following a false Jesus. Does that sound harsh? That's exactly what Christ is doing in our passage. That's exactly what He's doing in our passage. Look in verse 66. This is the response of the crowd to what Jesus is teaching. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. And you say, well, that's failure. I mean, he had a massive crowd, and now many of them, it says many, many of them have now turned back. And you say, well, that's a failure. He had the numbers, and now he's losing numbers. Is he failing? No, he's succeeding. Christ has successfully thinned the crowd. He separated the false from the genuine. And how has he done it? By presenting himself for who he is. This tells us something, by the way, verse 66, about the term disciple. Does that surprise you to see the word disciple in verse 66? And after this, many of his disciples turned back. This is not just people, some loose collection of people who just saw a a massive crowd and decided to join themselves to see what was up. These are those who claim to be followers of Christ. They claim to be his disciples. They had some sort of commitment to Jesus. Yet when they were confronted with who Jesus really was, they were offended. They turned back. They no longer followed him. What do we learn? Not all who call themselves disciples really are disciples. This also tells us something about the importance of preaching Scripture accurately and authoritatively. Because it's only by confronting people with the real Jesus that the true state of their souls will be exposed. That's what's happened here. So, It's at this point that we come to really our main text for this morning. After many turn back, refuse to follow Jesus any longer, he turns to his 12 disciples, that small inner group, and he asks them a question in light of what has just happened. Look in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? You see them turning back. There they go. Do you want to go as well? This is why we started by asking, how would you respond if you were asked to forsake Jesus? This is exactly what Jesus is asking the twelve. Would they join the crowd by turning back as well? Would they decide that his teaching was offensive and forsake him too? Of course, Jesus already knew who believed and who didn't. That's obvious from verse 64. Yet he poses the question anyway. Why would he ask the question if he already knew? This is an opportunity for his disciples to crystallize in their own minds the genuineness of their faith in and love for and loyalty to Jesus. This is exactly what this question served to do for Peter. We're going to focus on Peter for the rest of our time today. In this moment, Peter considered all that Jesus had been teaching. Everything from the Bread of Life discourse and before, Peter's thinking on this as he formulates his answer to Christ. 
He considers all that the many others had refused to believe, and he's determining whether or not he's going to reaffirm his commitment to Christ. And so as Peter thinks about this question that Jesus has posed to him, what is he recalling? What is he thinking about? Well, he recalls that Jesus promised that if anyone comes to him, they would never be cast out. Peter's thinking, well, Christ is the source of security. He's the source of security. Peter, in this moment, is thinking about Jesus' promise that those who believe in him would never experience spiritual hunger again. That is, that Christ provides spiritual sustenance. Peter's thinking about Jesus' words that we are not to labor for fulfillment in the fleeting things of this world, but instead to find satisfaction in Jesus. Peter's thinking as he considered Christ's teaching, the promises that those who believe in Jesus will never face judgment, but would instead receive salvation or eternal life. Peter's thinking about the fact that it's only through Jesus that one might have a relationship with the Father. Peter's thinking about the fact that though he die as a disciple of Christ, he will experience resurrection. This is what Peter's got to process as he's thinking through this question. Are you going to reject all that I've taught like these men and go away or not? Well, as Peter thinks on these things, I think he's welling up with conviction about Jesus, which is clear by his answer. And so he gives the only answer that he deems appropriate. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know. At one point, we believed it, but now through experience of your teaching and your character and your miracles, your ministry, we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. What an awesome confession. Go away. Where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Besides this, we've become fully convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Now, we're going to do something a little little unusual this morning. As, As I read Peter's confession here, I was struck with the similarities between Peter's confession here in John 6 with a similar confession in the Old Testament. In fact, I suggest that as Peter was thinking about how he would respond to Jesus... I think the passage we're about to look at in Psalm, 7, uh, Psalm 16 was actually on Peter's mind. We know biblically that Peter had an affinity for Psalm 16 because in Acts 2, after the resurrection of Jesus, when Peter preaches that great sermon at Pentecost, you know what one of his main texts are? Psalm 16. We're going to read that in a moment. It's not a stretch to think that Peter had David in Psalm 16 on his mind. This is a songbook of Israel, something that every Jew would have been familiar with. In Psalm 16, we find that David puts his pen to paper to express his love and loyalty to God, to provide a song to be sung by any faithful Jew who wanted to express his commitment to God. And that's exactly, I think, what Peter is doing in this moment. It may very well be this song in Psalm 16 which came to the mind of Peter when he's faced with a question as to whether or not he would forsake Christ. Psalm 16. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 is David expressing his full commitment to the Lord. John chapter 6, Peter's response to Jesus is an expression of his full commitment to Christ. In Psalm 16, David begins by stating that God is his source of security. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That is, when the storms of life rage, when the enemies surround me, he's saying, I run only to you. When I need deliverance, when I need safety, when I need security, you are the one to whom I run. And say, well, that seems obvious, but there's all sorts of things that men and women can run to in times of trouble. David says, no, you are my refuge and I run to you. This is quite a confession considering that David had the means and the ability to find safety and security in all kinds of things. I mean, military commander, the king of Israel. But he says, no, you are my refuge. As Peter considered Psalm 16, I think, he could well have thought about how Jesus had promised to be his security. He had promised that whoever came to him in faith, he would never cast out. He would preserve him through a continual supply of spiritual life, like a continual supply of bread and drink might preserve physical life. Through Jesus, Peter would forever be kept secure within a relationship with God. Jesus, for Peter, like Yahweh, for David, was a refuge. Next, look in verse 2 of Psalm 16. David says, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good, I have no good apart from you. This is why, if you notice, when we read, sometimes we use the proper name of God, Yahweh, instead of the generic term, Lord. If you see in your Bible, Lord in all caps, that's the translator's way of indicating that behind that is the proper name of God, Yahweh. But in Psalm 16, what's interesting is that it says there in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Well, I feel like something's lost there. When we don't understand that what David is saying, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. Of all the masters I could have, of all those that I could serve, Yahweh, I serve you. You are my Lord, and you are my master, my authority. There's no use in trying to find any good apart from you, he says. And notice what Peter says in John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? David says, Yahweh, you're my Lord. Peter says, Jesus, you're my Lord. 
David says, I have no good apart from you. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're my Lord, you're my authority, you're my master. There's no use looking beyond you for eternal life. Both David and Peter are expressing a total submission. They presented their lives to the master as an act of faithful allegiance. So as if to say, here I am, Lord, to serve you and you alone. There's nothing outside of you which compels me to serve or to offer my allegiance. Next, look at what David says in verses 3 and 4. It's as if David has, in his own mind, considered life to consist of two pathways. I could go this way, I could go that way. What are those two pathways? Well, he says in verse 3 and 4, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What are you saying? There's two paths here. The path of the saints, the path of the unbelievers. The path of the saints, the path of the unbelievers, I have a choice to make. This is what David's saying. I have a choice to make. I could go this way. I could go that way. As I consider the lifestyle of the world all around me, I could see the blessings that they experience, or I guess, the benefits that they experience. Maybe I want to go that way. I can look and see the saints and see all that they experience, all the benefits they have. Maybe I could go that way. But what does David say? Verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. I mean, the choice is made. I'm not going into the world. The saints, they're the ones that I love. The saints, that's where the, the, they're the excellent ones. They're the ones that I delight in. So the choice is made. On the other hand... I reject the path of the unbelievers. So much so, he says, that I'm not even going to allow my lips to utter the names of their gods. This reminds us of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's David saying, I've made my choice. Not the world, but the saints. Remember the context of John 6. Jesus sets before Peter a choice, two pathways. You're going to follow these who are rejecting me? What are you going to do, Peter? You're going to go back and forsake me, or are you going to continue in faithfulness to me? Of course, Peter, like David, chose to remain faithful to God. For both David and Peter, this was a conscious decision as they considered the philosophies and the values and the priorities and the lifestyles of people in the world. Would they be better off as their own lords? Devising their own paths, relying upon their own power, developing their own worldview, satisfying their own desires? Should they live like the world around them? Now, this is a choice for, especially this morning, if you're a young person, you're growing up in a Christian home, this path is set before you all the time. It's set before you all the time. What are you going to do? You can choose the faith of your parents, make it your own faith, and say, this is where I want, this is the pathway that I'm choosing. Or you look at the world and say, I could go uh, that way. Now, this is a legitimate choice that you could make, right? I mean, this is before David, this is before Peter. Like, what are you going to do? The decision has to be made. And interestingly, Jesus is the one setting the choice in front of Peter. And so we do well, I think, times to remind our kids this choice needs to be made. 
the world or Christ. It's, there's no middle ground here. It's one path or the other, right? I mean, Jesus says that somebody who's lukewarm makes him sick, right? Be cold or be hot, right? Yeah, you want to choose the world? Okay, go into the world. But if you're going to choose me, you're going to be fully devoted disciple. There's no middle ground. Don't be lukewarm. It makes me sick. So the decision for both David and Peter was clear. For all the talk about freedom and, and happiness that you see in the world by those who reject Jesus, it's clear that the end of their lifestyle is sorrow. That's what David says. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Right? I mean, don't buy into the, 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 the illusion of Instagram, right? I mean, don't, don't buy into the illusion of the online world. All that appears to be happy and drawing uh, men and women away into that type of lifestyle ultimately disappoints. That's what David's saying. The sorrows who run after another God shall multiply. That reminds us of Psalm 73, by the way, doesn't it? Now, this is important. Psalm 73 is great, and Psalm 37 are great considering this current culture where the, on, the allure of the online world puts lifestyles out there which draw young people away saying, how can I have that? I mean, what's the key to me to unlock that same type of notoriety and following and money? And you look there kind of over across, you know, looking across, across the fence, I guess you could say, and saying, look what's happening over there. They look like success and joy and happiness. Well, that's the psalmist in Psalm 73. But the psalmist in Psalm 73, as he considered the apparent happiness of those who didn't serve God, he comes to some conclusions. Some conclusions. He says in Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have, I have, uh, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He's saying, I see the end. Temporary happiness, temporary success, that's not where it's at. I understand what matters is the end. And in the end, what? Eternal relationship with the Father in the new creation, but he'll put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to him. So, as Peter considers the choice before him, turn back and forsake Jesus or continue with him. I think he may well have been thinking of Psalm 16. I think he may well have been thinking of these other psalmists, specifically David, as he considers the ways of such people and then answered back with that unabashed commitment to God. Well, now look in Psalm 16.5 at what David says. He says, Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Isn't this interesting? David decides to invoke a metaphor to describe his relationship to God. And what is it? Portion and cup. Food and drink. Food and drink. And he uses this to express his dependence upon Yahweh. It's the picture of someone kind of looking over an endless buffet and saying, okay, I've chosen my portion. David says, I've chosen Yahweh. I've entrusted my sustenance, my satisfaction, and my fulfillment to him alone. He says, you are my lot, or you, you hold my lot, sorry. He says, 
That is everything I have, everything that I am. All that will happen to me is completely in your hands, and I recognize it as such. I entrust it all to you. Well, of course, in John 6, Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter also has his mind upon food and drink as a metaphor for spiritual sustenance and satisfaction, because that's the exact metaphor that Jesus used to illustrate these same things. He's like bread and he's like drink. Peter saying, like David, I choose you. You are my chosen portion and my cup. I've heard everything that you've said about bread and about drink and about how we must feed upon you in order to have spiritual life and sustenance. I hear it, and yes, I make that same choice. I'll entrust my satisfaction and fulfillment and spiritual sustenance to you. Well, David continues in Psalm 16:6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Because David has chosen Yahweh as his portion and entrusted everything to him, he could look forward to a beautiful inheritance. What is this inheritance? Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is actually looking forward to resurrection. To resurrection. He had the confidence that because he served Yahweh, his body would not be left in the grave forever. Because he's chosen Yahweh as his portion and his cup, he would receive an eternal inheritance. Do you think Peter Peter in John 6 was thinking about resurrection at all? Absolutely. Why? Because he's thinking about what Christ had just taught. I mean, what the crowds had rejected. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever has chosen me as their portion and cup will not be abandoned in Sheol. Those who have chosen Jesus as their portion would not be left in the grave forever, but would be raised. John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And by the way, those words portion and inheritance have further significance. If you do a search in the Old Testament for those words close to each other, you realize that this is the language of the priesthood. When God was doling out portions of land and doling out inheritance to the tribes, what he said to the tribe of Levi was, to the priesthood, you're not going to get a portion or inheritance of land. Instead, he says, I am your portion and your inheritance. You see that in Numbers 18. You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Isn't that interesting? So what David's doing by invoking that language in Psalm 16 is saying to God, Lord, I am as consecrated to you as a priest. Peter would later pick up on this same theme in his first epistle. He wrote in 1 Peter 2, To all believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter saying, I am as consecrated to the Lord as a priest. And all believers ought to view themselves as a priesthood of believers with full consecration to the Lord. 
for David and Peter to properly worship God is to present oneself to him as wholly consecrated. Again, not lukewarm, as we talked about earlier, but a life fully devoted in service to him. Now, look in verse 7 of Psalm 16. David continues, I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. Here David is blessing Yahweh. Why? Because he had the experience of the Lord granting him wisdom and insight. In other words, David felt that he had been taught by God. This could put Peter in mind of Jesus' words in John 6.45. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Next, verse 8 of Psalm 16, David says, I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And again here, David speaks of total commitment to Yahweh. He's saying, I intend forever to be loyal to you. He's saying, I will live every day with a conscious awareness of your presence. He's not going to live, you know, with this compartmentalization here, the secular and the spiritual. There's no real division there between the spiritual and the secular. He's going to walk with the Lord his whole life long and will be able to face whatever comes to him because he knows that he's forever with him. Is there anything in John 6 that seems to indicate this same thing? I think so. Remember Jesus said, John 6, 55, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Remember we talked about those words feeding and abiding? What is he saying? To follow Jesus is to live with a conscious awareness of him. It's to live in such a way where the reality of Jesus and salvation in his name permeates every aspect of your life. It's to live in continual dependence upon him. Peter would live with Jesus always before him and with the continual confidence that because of Christ, nothing could separate him from God. Jesus, you're forever going to be before me. I will abide in you. Well, as we come to the end here, Psalm 16, we come to a therefore in verse 9. Therefore, what is the happy consequence of this total commitment of David to Yahweh? When he meditates on God as his only good, how does he feel? When he considers that his whole life has been entrusted to the Lord, what is his response? When he thinks about the promise of future resurrection and inheritance, what does he say? Well, verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Complete satisfaction, complete fulfillment as a result of his total commitment to Yahweh. Look in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Gladness, joy, security, pleasure. That's the consequence of David's total commitment to Yahweh. He's fully satisfied with him. In Yahweh, David says, he has found genuine life. He says, you have made known to me the path of life. I think that as Peter considered this passage, he, his mind would have gone to Jesus' words in John 6.35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Full satisfaction and fulfillment. Full satisfaction as a result of attaining genuine life. Peter expressed as much in his response to Christ. Look again in John 6.68. 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Like David, Peter had come to know the path of life. So in considering whether he would follow men and women who forsook Jesus, Peter could answer only one way. Where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? In other words, there is no choice. There's no other valid answer. It's really not a question at all. It's not something to be debated. It's not a tough choice. The conclusion is obvious. I would never turn back. Why? Because you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. I will never turn back because what? You have the words of eternal life. This is, this is the way it is for every genuine believer. You experience that person who identified as a disciple and no longer walks as a disciple. You see that celebrity or that well-known believer who deconstructs their faith. You say, well, well should I go away as well? For the genuine believer, it's never a real question. Where are we going to go? Christ and Christ alone offers true spiritual satisfaction. Christ and Christ alone has the words of eternal life. So this morning we should recognize that in the life of a believer, we're continually confronted with these questions. Every time we hear about someone who once claimed to be a believer choosing to turn away, Every time we're exposed to someone claiming to be deconstructing their faith, every time we learn about some other Christian leader who's renounced the faith, we face those same questions. For genuine believers, the answer is obvious. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus, what do we say? There's no good apart from you. Jesus, your people, your saints, those are my people. Those are the ones I delight in. Jesus, you are the source of genuine satisfaction. You are the bread. You're the drink. Jesus, my life is in your hands. Fully committed, I'm going to abide in you. My lot is in your hands. Jesus, you have an inheritance waiting for me. Jesus, you are my counselor. You are the one who speaks to me and teaches me through your word. Jesus, you are the one who's my constant companion. Jesus, you are the one who is my source of genuine joy. Jesus in you alone is the promise of life after death. And so, Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. On conclusion, notice that when Peter responded to Jesus, Peter kind of did a disservice to the 11 others who were with him. And again, I think that Peter is quite familiar with Psalm 16. I think it's on his mind. I think he sung it. I think, I think that's clear and that he preaches from it in Psalm 16. I think it's also clear because there's only one time in the New Testament when a follower of Jesus calls Jesus the Holy One of God. It's Peter who says that. And the only time we find a prophecy pointing towards Jesus in the Old Testament where he's called the Holy One of God is in Psalm 16. It's clear that it's on his heart and it's on his mind. So, I mean, it just kind of effervesces and comes out as he's asked about his commitment to Jesus. But I think he does a disservice to the other 11, especially a guy named Judas. Because Jesus asked this question of them all. Peter spoke up. Judas didn't have to answer. Look at verse 70. 
of John 6. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Okay, Peter's so quick on the response. Jesus now has to take the question and just directly confront Judas. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here we are reminded that when some false believers publicly turn back and refuse to walk with Christ any longer, some others continue in the community of believers. And that's Judas. He didn't join the crowd that turned back. He continued with the other disciples. Judas's charade would continue for some time. And during that time, he'd be accepted by the other believers as one of them. Again, he was spared from having to answer Jesus' direct question because Peter spoke up on his behalf. But it would have done him well to have to answer that question. This morning, we all do well to confront ourselves and even at times to confront one another with that same question. Do you want to go away as well? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. This morning, as believers, this morning, we confess, no, we don't want to go away as well. Where will we go? We confess this morning that Jesus is your Son, sent by you from heaven, with the words of eternal life, with the power and the authority to give life to whomever he desired, all whom you had given him. We confess that Christ is the authoritative Son of Man, who one day will stand before you and receive that eternal kingdom in which all peoples will serve him. We confess that Jesus is the one who offered himself, his flesh, for the life of the world, giving himself on the cross, not just suffering at the hands of men, but suffering under the weight of our sin. We believe that he bore your wrath towards us, becoming our substitute so that we could go free. We also confess this morning that Christ is the only one, after being buried for three days, who rose from the dead victorious over death. And we confess this morning that Christ is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning, waiting for the day when his kingdom will be received. And so we pray that you'll help us to live for Christ with absolute and total commitment. We pray that as we are exposed to others who defect from the faith, who expose their disingenuousness, We pray that every time that happens, it would be an opportunity for us, like Peter and like David, to uh, solidify our own faith, to confront ourselves with these questions, and then to answer back with total commitment. Now, this morning, we pray for those this morning who may be at that crossroads. They see the two paths before them, and they need to make a choice. I pray that they would choose Jesus. We're quick to acknowledge that that choice is the product of your grace. We pray that these would be confronted with that real choice and that they would choose Christ. Pray this morning for those who are here who are following Jesus, but this Jesus is a Jesus of their own imagination. As time goes on and as they're confronted with the Christ of Scripture, it will become clear. I pray for these that their false faith would become a genuine faith. We understand that that might require you exposing the falsity of their faith. Though that's painful, we know it's necessary. 
So we pray that you would expose any who are not genuine believers, help them to come face to face with the with that reality so that they could be genuinely saved. And then, Lord, the sad reality is we know that as time goes on, there will be some among us who go out from us, as John said, uh, exposing the fact that they're never truly of us. When that happens, I pray that our faith wouldn't be shaken, but I pray that as we confront ourselves with the question, will we go as well, that our faith would actually be strengthened, uh, just like it was for Peter. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for your goodness. We pray that your Holy Spirit would use these words to bring forth life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.